Okay, everybody, milk. And we're in our third week of the coronavirus. Uh, and so Seth and Wendy and I are getting together and we're pre-taping our uh, sermons and our shows. And you're watching it, uh, uh, streaming out to you here on Sunday. There's nobody in the studio audience because of the virus and the clampdown. But uh, may the Spirit of God move uh, regardless. We're in Colossians today. We're starting off a new book. It's a short book. We only have relatively short books left, and um, it's April 12th, and so let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get into the introduction to the book of Colossians. Lord, uh, be with Seth and Wendy and help the mechanics of recording and volume and everything else that's needed to put out good product to people who are listening and watching from home. We're grateful for them and their interest in seeking out the truth, whatever, wherever it might be found. And we pray that uh, you'll help us get through this material now. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul's letter, that's what it is. It's just a letter to the believers at Coloss. And, uh, and so Coloss was a big city, a grand city, part of Phrygia. We've talked about Phrygia, located in Asia Minor in the south, southern part of the whole province and was almost directly east of Ephesus, north of Laodicea, and west of Antioch. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus called it a great city of Phrygia, quote-unquote, in that part where the river Lysus descends into a chasm of the earth and disappears, but which, after a distance of five stadia, rises again and flows into the meander, a city well-inhabited, pleasant and large, end quote. Later, in the time of the writings of a historian guy named Strabo, it was reduced in size, the city, and it was mentioned by him as being one of the smaller towns. So we see the city's ebb and flow anciently. Not long after this was written, uh, uh, this epistle by Paul, and, uh, which was in the latter part of the reign of Nero, Coloss and Laodiceo, Laodiceo, Laodicea and Heropolis were all overwhelmed by a huge earthquake. And the, Pliny, the historian Pliny, he tells us that. Coloss, however, of those cities uh, recovered. And um, it's mentioned by the Byzantine writers as among the most opulent cities around that area. The ancient town today is extinct. Of course, there's ruins and things uh, around there. According to Acts chapter 15, verse 20 and 16, 1 through 6, the gospel was first preached in Phrygia. Phrygia was like the county, the county of that, uh, country county of that area. And Paul and Silas preached in Phrygia and they were accompanied by Timothy. We learned that from Acts. Because it reads that they went through Phrygia, it appears to mean that they also went through the towns of Phrygia. In Acts 18.23, it's said that Paul visited Phrygia again after he had been to these specific cities of Philippi, Athens, Jerusalem, and Antioch, and that he went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. We never read that Paul nor Silas expressly went to the city of Coloss. But because Coloss was one of the principal cities of Phrygia, 
There's every reason to believe that they preach the gospel there, and that is how there's a church there. Now, a number of scholars reject this completely, and they say Paul never made it to Colossus himself, and that he therefore had no real connection to the believers there, at least not in the sense that he had to the believers at Philippi. We just, we just finished uh, covering Philippians, and we know that Paul had a very intimate relationship with the church and believers there. Well, scholars say that's not the case with Coloss. Therefore, some maintain that the gospel was first preached there by Epaphras, and who heard the gospel uh, preached in Ephesus, and then he returned to Coloss to share the gospel with his own countrymen. So that's not a direct teaching from Paul to Coloss. It's going through Epaphras uh, by way of Paul, who learned the gospel and then brought it to his own hometown. The opinion that Paul had not been there and was personally unacquainted with the church is founded on his declaration in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul writes, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And from this passage, some believe Paul never went to Coloss or Laodicea. Now, that passage could be interpreted a number of ways, so we really don't know. That's not a definitive proof that he never went there, but that's just what some scholars used to say he never did. The epistle is believed to have been written while Paul was at Rome. He was a prisoner there. And about that time, he also wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, which we've already covered, and the epistle to Philemon. All of those were written while he was there. And of course, the epistle to Philippians, which we covered. Colossians 4, 7 and 9 says that the epistle was sent by Tychicus and Onesimus, both of whom are commended by Paul as faithful and beloved brethren. That this epistle and the one to Philemon were written about the same time is further apparent from the fact that Epaphras is mentioned in both as being with Paul and is mentioned in both of the salutations, both in Coloss chapter 4, verse 12, and in Philemon chapter 1, verse 23. So we have this kind of letter writing going on with Paul in, uh, in jail in Rome. And there's similarities of what's going on as he writes these letters. And they take those similarities and they say, it looks like they were written at the same time. The epistle to the Colossians bears what are called internal marks of having been written at Rome with Paul as uh, the author when he was a prisoner. Those internal signature marks are really important to scholars in how they determine when and where and, and how the letter was written. For example... In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And in Colossians 4, 18, he writes, Remember my bonds, end quote. These are internal evidences that point to when and where the epistles were written. The internal evidences of the book of Revelation, by the way, are so profoundly overt to show that the book of Revelation was written well before 90 AD, that um, it's amazing that people still buy into that, that old theory that it was written well after 90 or 95 AD. It was written well before 
uh, 70 AD, in fact, and the internal evidences support that. So I'm just speaking off the cuff about internal evidences. So if these clues are viable that are in Colossians, then it's not difficult to fix a date to the writing of this epistle to be around 62 AD. 62 AD is what I think, and I just go with that, it could be off uh, two or three years either direction. The general drift of this epistle has a strong resemblance to the epistle written to the Ephesians, and it bears internal marks. Both letters bear those internal marks I'm talking about that show they came from the same hand and that they are really covering a lot of the same uh, topics. It was evidently written in view of errors which extensively prevailed among the churches that were part of Asia Minor. And the letter was designed to prescribe the general duties to the believers in these places. Now, remember that the church at Colossus was one of a circle or group of churches. And they were all lying sort of next to each other. Just imagine that this, my hands are representing Asia Minor. And the cities are all kind of in a ring. They're all kind of, they're not in a perfect ring, but they're sort of connected to each other geographically in that area in Asia Minor. And so it's probable that the same philosophies were around them and the same errors and the same enemies and, and, and it prevailed through that entire region where these churches were situated. That group of churches includes those that were at Ephesus, Laodicea, Thyatira, and in general, those uh, that are uh, addressed in the book of Revelation as the seven churches of Asia, okay? So in that area, John receives a revelation from Christ to write the revelation and give it to those who are in the seven churches in this area where Paul has written a letter to the believers at Colossus. Now, Colossus is not one of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's mentioned uh, in Revelation, but it is one of the churches in that area. And so Paul is writing uh, to them. Uh, what are the general errors that were floating around those churches at that time? 61 AD, which is seven years before the destruction of Jerusalem and the wiping out of so many believers and Jews and everything else. Not believers, excuse me, just Jews. Believers by Nero, but not by uh, God. From the writing given to the other churches that were in that ring, we know some of the problems. For instance, to the church at Ephesus, there were, there were errors perpetrated that were, according to Revelation 2.2, those which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. So that was one of the problems in that ring of churches. There were people who said, we're apostles, they're not, and they were discovered as liars. That was a problem in that time. In Smyrna, in Revelation 2.9, Jesus says, those which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So in that ring, there were different believers who said, we're Jews, we're Jews. But Jesus himself tells John, they're not Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And what I think that means is they may have been Jews as, as far as their blood, 
But boy, their heart is not of the nation of Israel with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Their father is in the synagogue of Satan himself. These were bad times, right? In Thyatira, there was a woman named Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, according to Revelation 2.20. So the churches in the ring or in the area were experiencing problems from this. And in Pergamos, them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, was a problem. That takes a whole bunch of interpretation to explain that. Not going to do it now. But these were the, the central problems that these churches were all facing. Because of Colossus' proximity to the seven churches, it seems very likely that these infections, these uh, uh, false doctrines and false prophets, their errors were, were affecting them as well. Also in Paul, Paul's uh, departing speech to the elders at the church of Ephesus, he alludes to dangerous teachers. This is another problem to which the church had been exposed. And he says, For I know that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul is saying that would happen in his day. He goes, the moment I leave, I know. And he gives these dangers that were going on there in the church at Ephesus. He says that in Acts chapter 20. So he doesn't, he doesn't explain the exact perversity of what the teachers were going to be teaching, but he calls them wolves. And he, say, he says, they seek to enter into the flock and steal disciples away. So we know that's a problem that's in that vicinity. And in all probability, the Colossian church was facing that too. Another thing to consider, which we rarely talk about, and I just want to mention it, and that is John the Baptist had a very large following prior to the coming of Christ. And when he, John himself said, I must decrease so that the Messiah can increase, right? I have to tone down my following in, in my leadership of that following, so that the Messiah can increase in his following. And John's followers would have been extremely devout of the law. Okay, They would have really embraced John as their leader, and they would have followed after the law. And when John was put to death and they were left alone, they probably became these Eurydidic, type believers, sort of zealous for the law. They probably followed it with austerity and they probably were very, very stern in how they lived their life. And when John was killed, these guys were left. Now, of course, some of them followed Jesus because John identified Jesus as the Messiah. But there was in all probability because the flock was big that followed him, there was probably many followers of John the Baptist that had not converted to Christ. And therefore, they would probably make some trouble for the Christians because they viewed the law as very necessary to be right with God because they're following John. And we don't talk about that too much, but I believe it's pretty certain that some of these disciples were in and around the area. In Acts chapter 19, to help support this, Paul found a number of these uh followers, disciples of John the Baptist at Ephesus. And they professed, hey, we haven't received any Holy Ghost. We don't know any Holy Ghost or whatever you're talking about. 
Uh, we've only been baptized with John's baptism. Okay, so th- there's kind of this evidence there that they're out there and they were, they were seekers of God for sure, but they hadn't received Christ yet. They hadn't received this Holy Ghost. So among the most distinguished and influential of these post-John the Baptist disciples was a guy named Apollos. And it talks about him in Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 25. And he is represented as very eloquent in the scriptures. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, describes Apollos and says, the way of God was expounded more perfectly to him. So it seems Apollos was this great tool in God's hand. And when the word of God was expounded more perfectly to him, his eyes opened, the Holy Spirit was received, and he became a great tool in God's hands to convert those John the Baptist followers that were out there. And however, it's likely that many of John's apostles were never reached by Apollos and or the apostles, and therefore their strident demands for keeping the law had probably crept into the churches. And they were probably saying, what are you guys doing? You know, we follow John and, and he was the prophet of prophets. And we don't know of this Christ and we don't know of this Holy Spirit, but you are doing what's wrong. And they probably had the same kind of sternness that John had. So that's another possible danger that was there uh, presented to the church at Coloss and, and why Paul is writing them a letter. If we look at the epistle itself to the believers at Coloss, uh, we're also able to uh, see that some of the errors crept into the church and Paul will address them. According to Colossians 2, 4 through 8, the first danger arose from the influence of philosophy that causes Paul to warn. He says, quote, lest anyone should beguile you with enticing words, philosophy and vain deceit. And he refers to that philosophy that was based on the traditions of men after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Now, this philosophy that Paul is warning them against in Colossians chapter 2 was all around them. Remember, Hellenistic culture, which is the Greek culture, it had existed for 500 years before Jesus was even born. So, and we, we even today have some of our greatest philosophical minds come from that era and give us the, the foundation for many philosophical thoughts. And so it was totally immersed in philosophy. And that might be why Paul warns them uh, to be careful of the spirit of this philosophy. As mentioned in relation to John's disciples, presence, uh, uh, that would be a second source of danger, you know. And Paul refers to the rites and uh, rituals of the Jews as well being a danger when he says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of Sabbath days. He says that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. So these guys are ensconced in trouble, the church. It would be like you were a rabbit and you were in a room and you had in that room uh, boa constrictors, wolves, um, eagles, and bears. That's how you would feel as a Christian at that time. Hence the apostolic letters to them to help them see through the mire of uh, stuff that was there. And there's one more animal in there, a mountain lion that was, predator, uh, that was a predator to the Christians. 
And that was the Eastern influenced, we're talking about the Far East influence, a philosophy called Gnosticism. The Gnostics, they brought a different theory to the game that's different than the Greeks' philosophy, different than the Jews' law. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in him Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what Paul wrote. That's a direct confrontation of the Gnostic ideas that denied the fact that God could or would dwell bodily in a human form in reality. And it also included the assumption of a human nature by Jesus was only in appearance. The Gnostics taught Jesus wasn't real. He just appeared to be real. Okay? Wasn't a reality. That's called Gnosticism. Therefore, the Gnostics taught what Jesus did on the cross was also in appearance. It wasn't actual. And these ideas are strictly renounced by John the Beloved, of course, in his gospel and in his epistles, and by Paul here in Colossians. Colossians 2.18, there's also a reference. He says, beware of voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, introducing into those things which are not seen and which lend vainly to puff up a fleshly mind, end quote. And that would be another reference to the Gnostics who paid homage to these angelic aeons, they were called, that couldn't be seen. And they have this, this um, sway over fleshly minds, this Gnosticism. And that's probably a direct reference to it. So because of all this, it seems that Paul's epistle to Colossus didn't have much to do with their morality as believers. It's not like this is 1 Corinthians, where, you know, boys are sleeping with their dad's wives This is a very different subject. He is warning them all about these vain philosophies, these difficult traditions, these imposing threats that are all around them to devour the Christians. That being said, there were there are a couple places where Paul talks about sins, but they just seem to represent the sins of the flesh in general. He talks about fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy filthy communications and lying. And so all of that he is uh, warning against. So uh, maybe those things were present, but they appear to be written and addressed to the Colossians as these are common things in the flesh which you are not above. So above all this, it's pretty easy to see there was a presence of false philosophy. There was the presence of all those dangers, the churches that are mentioned in Asia Minor, the seven churches in Revelation, had. There was influence from false teachers in the rabbinic nature, could have been John the Baptist followers, and there were superior claims of, um, of these Jewish rites over Christianity. Since Laodicea was the capital of Phrygia, some wonder, this is kind of a big topic, and I'll try to cover it with some sensibility here, but some wonder, how come Paul didn't write a letter to the church at Laodicea, but instead wrote a letter to the smaller Coloss. How come? And there's a whole bunch of answers to this. Perhaps it was because Onesimus, 
who was with Paul at Rome when he was about to return to his master Philemon, who was at Coloss, was going there in the first place, and Paul sought to take this as an opportunity to send them a letter. Perhaps also Epaphras, who was a kept teacher at the church of Coloss, and who was also with Paul at Rome, he may have asked Paul, hey, will you write a letter, an epistle to uh, the, the church that I'm going home to? That's my church, and I think they need to hear from you about philosophy and these things. You see, we know from the first chapter that Paul had learned from Epaphras the condition of the church at Coloss. And so it's very natural to assume that he asked Paul, Epaphras, to address those issues. Hand in hand with all that, since Epaphras is one of those who taught the believers there, perhaps his views were being challenged. Perhaps they were turning from what Epaphras taught. Perhaps they were saying, oh, Jesus didn't die on a cross. Oh, he didn't resurrect physically. These were the Gnostic views. Perhaps John's were saying, oh, don't listen to what Epaphras said. He's lost his way. We obey the law when Epaphras said we, we die to the law. Who knows what it was, but it is possible that he wanted Paul to address that. Um, but... <clears throat> <coughs> It's not the virus. (laughs) We don't know why a letter wasn't written to the Laodiceans, but I'm going to talk about that again. But first I want to talk about how similar the epistle to Ephesians and the epistle to Colossians are. And it's big to some people. And once you see the data, you're going to be surprised. Seth has worked up a remarkable thing, but I don't have it on my screen. Wendy is wandering around looking for communion wine. There it is. Okay. So at the top, uh, the topic here is the similarities between the epistle to the Ephesians and the epistle to the Colossians. So the similarity is Tychicus as a bearer of the epistle is designated to the churches who would tell of Paul's state of affairs upon their arrival. This is mentioned in in Ephesians 6, and it's mentioned in Colossians 4, 7. So that's unique. There's another one that's up at the top that we don't have, and that's Paul's in prison. And that's mentioned in Ephesians 3, 1, 4, 1, and 6, 20, and it's mentioned in Colossians 3, 1. The next one we have is that the audience for both churches is commended for their faith and love. That's a quote to both of them. So what we're beginning to see is sort of a template going on here between the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians. Colossians was commended next for their hope. Ephesians were exhorted to lay hold of hope. And you see the verses there below where you have those comparisons. Paul prayed for, or he wished, that the two churches would grow in their knowledge of the Lord and receive spiritual wisdom and understanding. That was his wish for both places. That makes sense. They were neighbors. But nevertheless, this shows that the letter to the church at Coloss was not as intimate. It wasn't as I know that this is happening and you need to do this. That's different from the letter of, uh, uh, to Ephesus. There's some differences, but not as much. He also desired that they would know the will of the Lord. 517 in Ephesians, 1-9 in Colossians. Paul then mentioned the uh, redemption Christ provided and he emphasized in both epistles that this was through Jesus' blood. 
That's at uh, Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.4. So the template thing going on here. And maybe we don't know all the facts. Maybe, you know, if Colossians is a derivative letter front, taken directly from Ephesians as a means to expedite the process by Paul. We don't know, but these, these things are there. Uh, we also know that Christ is pictured as the head of the church, which is his body, in Ephesians 1.22 and in Colossians 1.18. And the members actually function like a human body uh, in that each other is properly needed for the function of that body. And that's all through Ephesians 4.15-16 uh, and Colossians 2.19. And then Jesus also is above all principalities, dominions, authorities, powers, might, and thrones. That's in the first chapter of Ephesians and the first chapter of Colossians. A deliverance from darkness into the kingdom of God is discussed in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians and chapter 1 of Colossians. The process by which God took Gentile believers from being God's enemies to being God's children is discussed in 10 verses in Ephesians 2 and in two verses in Colossians uh, one. So again, I, we see kind of a simmeri, a summer, a simmering version, a truncated version um, that is written to the Colossians instead of the, the larger version that was written to the Ephesians. And we see the law has been terminated. He talks about in 2, 14, 15 and, and 2, 14, 16. That's really close to home that both letters talk about it in the same chapter, in the same place, and in the same verses, even though it wasn't written in chapter and verse at that time. There's a call to holiness, commanding the saints to cast off their works of darkness, chapter 4 through 5, and then chapter 3, 1 through 17. There's the discussion of putting off the old man and putting on the new man and renewing their mind in true righteousness and holiness according to Christ as being strengthened by God's Spirit in the inner man. That's, again, in, in Ephesians 3 and 4, and it's in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. Part of the holiness involved in forgiving others is, is mentioned there. That's chapter 4, 32 in Ephesians and 3, 13 in Colossians. And the type of forgiveness that would flow came from their love for one another. That's specifically mentioned in chapter 5 of Ephesians and chapter 3 of Colossians. Paul spent some time, some length time in both books talking about submission Submission, and this is where we get into talking about husbands and wife and father and child and master and slave, expounded upon in Ephesians. It's chapter 5, verses 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. That's a lot of room where he's talking about submission. And if we look at Colossians, the same amount of space, chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Those are a lot of verses uh, shared in each epistle talking about the uh, subject of submission. And finally, at the conclusion of both epistles, Paul requests prayer that he might be able to preach the gospel of Christ. And that's in 619 in Ephesians in the last chapter of Colossians, which is chapter four, verse three. So that's, uh, you know, uh, oh, one other thing. Also in Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, he says something interesting. You ready? He says, and when this epistle is read among you, to the believers at Coloss, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So that passage, chapter 4, verse 16 in Colossians, has Paul say, hey, you guys, when you get this letter from me, after you've read it, share it with the church at Laodicea and have the church at Laodicea give you their letter and they'll share it with you. 
First part's pretty reasonably clear. This is an epistle we have in our scripture. We read it so we know that there's a letter and Paul says, take this letter, Colossian believers, over to Laodicea and let him read it. The problem is when he writes, likewise, read the epistle of Laodicea yourselves, we have a problem because we don't have an epistle to Laodicea. Or do we? So you got to put on your thinking caps on this one a little bit. From the language Paul uses, it seems that instructions were that Colossians share your epistle and Laodiceans share your epistle. And this is how the churches learn the advice from Paul to the different uh, churches where there might be some differences. There is an epistle called the St. Paul's Epistle to the Laodiceans that's out there. Let's just get this off the table. But it has never been believed to be authentic or genuine. And it's universally claimed by scholars in the know to be a forgery. However, there's always people who love forgeries to believe they're real. And there's people out there who think this book should be contained in the scripture. And um, it's an interesting thing. It's like the Gospel of Thomas. Is there a Gospel of Thomas? Well, there is a Gospel of Thomas. Is it reliable? Is it not a forgery? Is it genuine? Well, that's up to debate. So you look at the content of the epistle and you say, well, what's in there that made the apostles or made the uh, people who gathered scripture say, this is not an authentic um, epistle. So I'm going to read to you the, uh, the epistle to the Laodiceans that is extant out there. And it's short. And it really doesn't say or do anything that's unique from what I've seen. I might come across something now that's disputable. It sounds like it's borrowed from all the other epistles and kind of made a Frankenstein epistle. But you have to decide if this strikes you as authentic in your spirit or not. Now, the reason I say that is scholars will take this epistle and they'll say after reading it, obviously that is just hocus pocus. But when I read it, it just doesn't seem to be that far afield. So let me read it to you. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ, to the brethren in Laodicea, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God in Christ always in my prayers that you are mindful of and are pers persevering in good works, waiting for the promise in the day of judgment. And let not vain speeches of some who would conceal the truth disturb you to turn you away from the truth of the gospel which has been preached unto you. Now God grant that all they who are of me may be born forward to the perfection of the truth of the gospel, to perform those excellent good works which become the salvation of eternal life. That's a little difficult. That one's a little difficult. And now are my bonds manifest, in which bonds I am in Christ and at the present time. But I rejoice, for I know that this shall be for the further ends of my salvation, which is through your prayer and the supply of the Holy Spirit, whether by life or by death. For to, me, for to me to live is Christ, 
and to die is joy. But our Lord himself shall grant you his mercy with us, that possessing love you may be of the same mind and think the same thing. These are all themes that are all through the epistles we've studied. On this account, brethren, as you have heard of the appearing of the Lord, so think and do in the fear of God, and it shall be eternal life to you, for it is God who worketh in you. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, for the remainder, brethren, rejoice, and for the remainder, brethren, rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, and see that ye keep yourselves from all base gain of covetousness. Let all your requests be made known with boldness unto God and be firm in the mind of Christ. And finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are holy, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, these things do. And what you have heard and received, keep in your hearts and it shall give you peace. Salute all the brethren with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Cause that the epistle be read in the churches of the Colossians. And do you also read the epistle from Coloss? So that's the, that's the uh, epistle to the Laodiceans. And somebody out there, according to our scholars, said, woke up one day and said, I'm going to piece together a fantastic epistle that apparently came to the Laodiceans. And he presented it as a forgery. I see, in my estimation, one line in there that's difficult and that could have thrown the whole thing into question. And that's the one about uh, your excellent good works which become the salvation of eternal life. That one is in complete conflict with most of what uh, the rest of Scripture says except when you look at James. So uh, what are we to say about this exchange of the epistles that's mentioned? There's a few options. First, there was an epistle to the Laodiceans And it is what I just read to you. Or for all sorts of reasons, um, and for all sorts of reasons, that epistle has been rejected. So we don't have it in our canon. Or that epistle was lost. It's not what I just read to you. It's another one, and it was lost. So that leads you to the question of Paul wrote an actual letter to the Laodiceans that he wanted read by the believers at Coloss, and it was lost. And you have to say, yes, that would be the case. If the Laodicean letter that we have in our, in our hands that the scholars say is spurious, then we have to say that the letter that Paul did write has been lost. And that then throws a wrench into the, uh, to the conversation that says, God preserved his word perfectly and brought forth everything that was necessary. So it, it creates a whole bunch of problems. Or the letter, the epistle, was synonymous, and this is what I think it is, with the circular letter that was written to Ephesus. You got to go my, go back to our study of Ephesus, and we learned that that letter was a circular letter. And what it meant was, in the ring, once this church has read it, send it over to the next church. The next church would get it, and they would rewrite it, and it would say, where it was first to uh, Coloss, it was now to Ephesus. And then Ephesus would send it to Pergamos and Pergamos would take it and say to the church at Pergamos. And so we have all these different uh, versions of, of the letter to the Ephesians that went to all the churches under each church's name. And so it's quite possible that Paul is talking about the circular letter 
that went to the Laodiceans. And because Laodicea and Coloss were geographically close, he's saying you guys exchanged those letters. That's how I see it, whatever it's worth. But we'll revisit this question when we get to chapter four. So there are some of the essentials about the letter to the Colossians. They kind of give us the framework of it. And I'm just going to read the first eight verses and we're not going to cover it this week. We're going to stop and next week we'll get into our verse by verse of the chapter. You ready? Actually, that's not true. I'm going to cover... um, I'm going to cover one point about these eight verses. And I have to cover it. And I hope you'll consider what I have to say. So the eight verses say, first chapter of Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Coloss, grace be unto you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also unto you since the day ye heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. You also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who has also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Okay, you got that? So go back to verse one with me. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother. So we know that the word apostle means one sent and it can mean anybody sent, anybody. It's not a title. There were special apostles that were witnesses of Christ, but one apostolos means anyone who was sent. Paul here says he was sent by the will of God. That's what Paul says. God himself, I received my commission from him, the Almighty, I was sent forth. And he adds something curious, and Timotheus. Interestingly, Though Timothy is mentioned here in the salutation, it's not believed he had anything to do with its uh, composition. But he adds, and Timothy here, as a result, we believe Timothy was probably acting as what they call an amanuensis, which is a scribe. He was writing what Paul said. So that's why he adds Timothy to that. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Coloss. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord of Jesus Christ. Who was this letter written to? Sean McCraney in Salt Lake City? No, it was not. The saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Coloss. That gives you our context for the whole epistle. We, our job as believers today, nearly 2,000 years later, are to read that epistle and allow the Spirit to extract the applicable portions that fit with the world we live in today. It is not, it was never written to us, and therefore there are going to be things in it that do not apply to us. And this is what many Christians have a problem with. They read the Bible and they think, it's in there, it's true. It applies to me. It was written to me. I do it. And that's a real big problem. 
And so we see that there are some themes that go on in these epistles that aren't to us. Grace be unto you. And this is fun with biblical literalists, by the way. When you say, if you take the Bible literally, and Paul says, this letter was written to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Brethren, so not women, in Christ who are at Coloss. So if you're a biblical literalist, you can't read Colossians and think it was written to you or to any woman. You see how stupid it is? So we don't take it that way. Paul adds, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to let you know the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ is absent in many of the manuscripts and in some of the writings of the early church fathers. The Lord Jesus Christ is not included there. Also interesting, every version includes this line, probably because it's included in the introduction of other epistles. So that... And the Lord Jesus Christ is in other epistles. So they probably thought, ah, it's in other ones. Let's add it to Coloss. But the Colossian manuscript does not seem to have and the Lord Jesus Christ in the uh, most, um, the biggest um, volume of manuscripts we have. It's not there. And he adds verse three. And we give thanks to God. And we give thanks to God. And the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. In verse 2, Paul said, from God our Father, and then that line that could have been there or might not have been, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't matter if it was or wasn't. It truly was from them both. And then here in verse 3, again, he says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Always from Paul. Always, he says, God the Father. Always, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Never God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Never from the words of Paul or Peter or John or James or Jude. Never. Okay? Always God the Father and always our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can pick on me for this emphasis, but that's what it says. That's what they said. And it's what I'm about to say was also said by Paul, and I'm going to wrap it up with these few passages. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul writes, you listen to what scripture says, not what men say, not what I say in my opinions, what scripture says. Paul wrote, but there is to us but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. He made that clear. There's one God. In Galatians 1.1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised us from the dead. Again, distinguishing. Calling one God, the Father, and calling the other one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.3, grace be unto you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6.23, peace be unto brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.1, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Timothy, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
2 Timothy 1.2, to Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 1.4, to Titus, mine own son after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus our Savior. What Peter's said always in 1 Peter 2, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter 1.2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Peter 1.17 he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when he came such a voice to him with such excellent glory saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is what John wrote in 2 John 1.3. Grace be unto you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Jude wrote in Jude 1.1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Again, what does Paul say? In the most definitive passage, there is to us but one God, the Father. He wrote this. I didn't make this up. This is how Paul describes our God, the Father. There's but one, the Father, by whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. I want to leave off with the same thought that Peter and Paul and John and Jude clearly presented us via the Spirit without the interference of men and their creeds, okay? Uh, there is one God, the Father, and there is one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that God himself, through the man Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior and Master and King, reconciled the world, not to them, but to himself. And that God with us gets the glory and honor. Certainly, Jesus was God with us. Certainly, the Holy Spirit is God with us. But there is one God, and that is the Father, and the, all the apostles and writers of Scripture make that clear. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we... Uh, we pray that you will uh, be with us in these difficult times and you'll get us through and that we'll start to see a light at the end of the tunnel in whatever means that comes and uh, we'll begin to experience outdoor activity again. And we pray for those people who are watching at home who are seekers of truth that your spirit will move them to know you and to know your son because in that is life eternal and bless the message that will go out to the right people at the right time and in the proper manner. And that we'll all be closer to you because of it. Forget the things I say which are wrong and improperly delivered. We just pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.